Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. It's a great day. Uh, Even with this coronavirus, we can still talk about ways of enhancing our communities, creating wealth. And today we have Sarah McKinley uh, on the phone with us, and she's the director for European Program for the Democracy Collaborative, and the European representative for the Next System Project. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Vernon. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me clearly? I'm, I'm actually calling in from, from Brussels, Belgium, the other side of, of the ocean. Fantastic. I was going to ask you, first question is, where are you in the world? I hear you very clearly. You come across very clearly. And thank you for taking our time to be on the program to share the things that you're doing internationally now. The last time you were on, you were just right here in the district working with 20 cities in the U.S., cities building wealth, I think is what you call cities building community wealth. It's what you called your book back then that you all created in 2015. So now you've got a worldwide view. Yeah, absolutely. I can't believe it was 2015. It feels like a whole other world ago, yeah? Yes. Yes. So what are you doing, Sarah? Well, yeah, and thank you again for having me. And I, I heard at the opening that, you know, it's a great day, even in this weird new reality we're all living in, in coronavirus. But I really actually think it's quite topical because I do think cooperatives and cooperation in general are really going to be even more important um, in this new sort of future we're looking at and, and cooperating to, to meet our needs and, and, and for value rather than just for exchange, I think is going to be really important moving forward. So really excited to be here and talking about this. Well, before you move forward, let's unpack that a little bit because I totally agree with you. So that in this corona environment, I'm sitting at home now because it's just uh, just not going out, not moving or not moving very much. Go to the store or to the pharmacy. And I live in a co-op and I called the president last night who is ill with allergies and said, do you need anything? Because that's what we do in co-ops. We we look around and see. And she said, yeah, somebody else had called her. And we sort of brainstorm, how can we do for seniors in, in this community, 57-unit community? So that's what co-ops do. And what you just said was that there's going to be a bigger need for cooperation, a bigger need for us coming together and working together and solving things, right? But you said something not just for transactions. So mm. we're going to get together for, and I don't remember exactly what you said, but not just for, and I wanted to put instead of transaction, not just for money, but mm. for value, for fun, for life. That's Is that exactly what you mean? Right, yeah. Exactly. Co-ops and cooperation, sort of more broadly, is managing for people's needs, right? It's it's working 
and creating use value rather than exchange value. So we're not just in this transactional, as you said, exchange. We're actually finding ways to meet each other's needs and add value to our life. One of the things you've already started to see in places like the UK, for example, in response to coronavirus, are um, the growth of mutual aid networks to help people who who are really at risk and can't go out, um, as most of us now can't in this in this present moment. Um, so how can we cooperate to help one another when we don't sort of just have the same commercial consumer transaction behaviors um, available to us as as we're used to? So I think I think we're really seeing. And, and you've seen this all, all over for history, for human history, that people cooperate to meet their basic needs. And you see that happening a lot in informal economies, uh, in communities that aren't um, aided by our current system. You see people coming together, cooperating, meeting each other's needs in a mutual and supportive kind of way. So we're seeing that happening now um, uh, as a more common phenomenon during this coronavirus um, epidemic. And my hope is that we can use that as sort of how we move to a better, more humane and more sustainable way of having our needs met as a society as we as we learn and grow from this moment, from this inflection point. So that's that's the hope. And you're, you're seeing it happen kind of organically. Um, how can we really tap into that um, as we try to make change from this from this pretty scary and anxious moment? How can we find that silver lining and, and use that as a model for for our future? Totally agree. And matter of fact, Sarah, we've been online now uh, with this program six and a half years, and we were only going to do it one month. And one of the takeaways that I've gotten by talking to people like you for uh, 52 times in a year is that uh, the, the basic sort of, I don't know, the premise for people, particularly if you go back to tribes and communities, everybody had to work together. Everybody had their their role to play. And that if anybody didn't get done, I mean, if you didn't go get the wood, you didn't have fire, you didn't have fire, you didn't have food or, or warmth. So everybody had their thing that they had to do. Men went out and got food, killed it at first, and then brought it in and women cooked it or whatever they did, or the women became the gatherers. So you had these kind of different roles. And if people didn't do their role, the whole community went down. And I just think that's basic, natural human needs, working together, mm -hmm. getting together. Yeah, which is anti the Long Ranger or um, John Wayne of right. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm number uno, which we have become. And I was all in that in capitalism. I got to do it on my own. That didn't work too well for me. So, yeah, I like this. And. It's interesting. We start here with the coronavirus that you picked up right away is that hopefully the silver lining will be we'll get back to more and more of that, that we help people. Because right now, I think there's three people in the world, three billionaires that have more wealth than the bottom 50 percent. That's absolutely right. And a completely unsustainable statistic, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's just more and more people will die. Hmm. That's what it looks like because we don't have the basic need of food and shelter and health care. And this is what this health care 
coronavirus is making us look at the health care system ah. of delivering uh, health to people when they're ill. Okay, and it can break down because you don't have swabs. You definitely don't have mm-hmm. testing here. But if you just if you had the testing kits and you don't have the swabs to apply the testing kits, it's, just, it's so much. It just rolls all the way through. Okay, you're supposed to be talking. So the question I asked you was, what are you doing in the U.K.? <laughs> well, and uh, thank you. I, I, I think it's all related, right? All of these uh-huh. things are, are connected. Um, and so when we spoke last, which, uh, as you said, was about five years ago, we were working in 20 different places around the city, uh, excuse me, around the country in the U.S., examining what cities were doing to help build community wealth. So how to help create um, means for uh, not only creating, but keeping wealth circulating in community, in the hands of residents and people within the community who who are doing the work and can benefit from from that wealth, and uh, rather than having that wealth extracted from their community, which so often happens in other models, um, particularly so, in the corporate capitalist model. So, real quickly, that was Austin, Texas, Boston. Burlington, Vermont, Chicago, Cleveland, Denver, Kansas City, Keene, New Hampshire, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Newark, New Orleans, New York, Oakland, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Portland, Richmond, Rochester, and Seattle, Washington. So you're all over the U.S. looking at these cities. That's right. And and in that report that we wrote then, those were really just examples. So we were highlighting some of the places that were really moving forward in various ways to to advance some of these models of, of building wealth locally. Um, there are many other places who are doing similar things. Right now, our organization, the Democracy Collaborative, is working in about 30 different communities um, across across the country um, as well. So, so some of those communities and others, um, including places as diverse as Albuquerque, New Mexico, Richmond, Virginia, we already mentioned New York City and, and Cleveland, and, and now more and more um, internationally as well. And just for, for folks on the line who maybe didn't hear that broadcast, just to sort of contextualize cooperatives within that sort of concept of building community wealth, um, cooperatives are one mechanism of many, of an ecosystem of, of a more inclusive local economy that can build institutions that that create and circulate wealth locally in communities. So, so when we talk about community wealth building, we're talking about sort of an ecosystem of the local institutions, including co-ops, including local finance, which could also be cooperatives, cooperative um, finances, credit unions, and unions, so so on and so forth, but also institutional partners like hospitals and universities and city governments um, that are all working together to connect their economic impacts to communities in a in an inclusive, sustainable way. So it's really a network and an ecosystem that includes co-ops, but is also beyond co-ops. And I can talk a little bit more about examples of that in, in the U.S. And, and abroad, but I just wanted to sort of stop on that point a little bit just to understand that it's not just one intervention point. It's sort of a multiplicity of 
cooperating institutions and actors in place to sort of build a robust um, ecosystem on the ground, just to clarify okay. that. I'm glad, and you said inclusive local communities, and so that's everybody, <laughs> okay, that's whites and right. blacks and browns and women and Native Americans, that's the poor, the rich, it's inclusive, and we don't have that so much in the capitalistic system. A lot of people are excluded that's, out of that system and creating wealth. That's exactly right. And just to sort of focus on that point of inclusivity, it's, it's not only including everybody, but it's particularly focusing on those communities that have been, quote unquote, left out from, from traditional economic activity on those communities that really um, do not participate or haven't been allowed to for all sorts of things from redlining and other institutionalized racist practices and others to really being aware of, of those sort of systemic injustices and and intentionally creating new forms of institutions and infrastructure and ecosystems that include those people. And and in fact, you know, if wait, done wait, 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 we got I'm sorry. Yeah. I was still listening to you. I forgot. We've got to take a break, but we'll be right back. Uh, okay. News Talk Station. Information is power. Yes, and this is why the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program and have been for six and a half years. So we can give you information. And right now we're talking to Sarah McKinley, Director of European Programs for the Democracy Collaborative. And we're talking right now about the book that they wrote in 2015, our cities building community wealth, and so right before we left, you had you were talking about this particular focus on those communities that have had systemic injustice, and I call it marginalized communities, mm. and a lot of African American communities are in that group, Mexican American, uh, Native American are in that group. But you've talked about ecosystem. You've used that word several times. So could you explain that definition of what that what is the ecosystem? Yeah, ecosystem, at, at least in this context when we're talking about it, is a sort of system of connected institutions, actors, enterprises working together in a collaborative way rather than, say, a competitive way to advance the common good, if you will. So it's not just one entity trying to achieve it all. It's many entities working together in a, in a collaborative way to achieve a, a similar end. And that end in this instance, I mean, you know, quite tactically is, is creating and circulating wealth for community. But the end goal of that should be prosperity um, for that community and prosperity, not in terms of sort of riches, but in, in thriving, right, in the ability to live happy healthy, connected lives. And so, you know, right now we have a system that essentially extracts those things from communities and doesn't actually create value in place for a lot of people. It tends to create value for some people. And as you said just before the break, you know, we're seeing that coming to the point where you have three people in the world who have more wealth than 50 million people combined. Um, 
so, you know, the way that they can do it's not that they created that wealth on their own. It's they extracted that wealth from the people in the communities who created it. So how can we create a system that actually is designed to create more equitable, more sustainable, uh, and more sort of human-centered outcomes for community um, just by their natural functioning? So if you can create institutions and infrastructure and enterprises that work together just by the way they are designed to create more sustainable outcomes, um, you know, then you will have healthier communities and healthier people. And of course, you know, institutions are human constructs, right? We can, we can create um, these, these institutions to function in a more humane way. I think we are so often mired in the way that things are done that we don't step back and realize that they can be done in a different way. And then, in fact, we have the ability to reshape them. And that's why cooperatives are so powerful, because they show you that people coming together in a cooperative, collaborative, communal way can meet their own needs and create their own sort of enterprise or their own exchange in the form of cooperative banks or so on and so forth. So they're a really powerful player within a broader ecosystem. You know, for example, you know, a cooperative kitchen or, or food system needs to be connected to finance, right? It needs to be connected to buyers. Uh, it needs to be connected to institutional buyers. It needs to be connected to end users and so forth. So it's not a standalone solution. It's part of a whole system. And how can every piece of that system designed in a way that has sort of community benefit as part? Um, so, so that's sort of what we think of when we think of ecosystems and healthy ecosystems. Um, a healthy ecosystem should be regenerative, right? It should be feeding into each other and one another in a healthy building kind of way rather than extractive and depleting sort of way, which is what you see most institutions at this moment. So it's interesting you use the example of a food kitchen that's a cooperative. Speaking of healthy, you need good, healthy food. But in this ecosystem, and I'm looking into my head this model of you in your co-op, you have the members at the top of your organizational chart. They have the power. They elect a board of directors. And that board hires management, management hires staff and vendors and so forth. And on the side of the board, you may have committees or you may have other organizations like technical assistance organizations. You may have the bank uh, or credit union. Uh, you, you have legal and accounting people all feeding into the board in this systematic kind of way. And if you look at the sixth principle of cooperation, it's cooperation among co-ops. So you'd have this food kitchen working with the credit union, working with co-ops like maybe Cabot Creamery, the buy their mm -hmm. milk products or cheese or whatever. It's another co So you get this whole system working where each of these communities, the money stays in that community. So if that food kitchen was in D.C., then the people that own it live around this D.C., this area, and the money stays inside D.C. Because when they make money, the those members decide how that money is spent. It, it, it works, this ecosystem that you're talking about. It works and works really well for the 
people involved. That's why I love co-ops, by the way. All right. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> well, that's absolutely right. And a, and a good example of that is is the work that we've been involved in in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and that is a network of employee-owned cooperatives called the Evergreen Co-ops um, that work directly to supply goods and services to the institutional actors um, within the downtown core of Cleveland, so the Cleveland Clinic, Case Western University, um, the city of Cleveland, and others, they purchase directly from these employee-owned cooperatives that are located directly in the inner-city communities of Cleveland. They're owned by their employees who share in the profits. First of all, they're networked one to another. There are currently three co-ops, and they're all connected to one another. So as they um, become profitable, not only are they sharing the profits with the employee owners, but they're also putting into a financial instrument, which then can be used to help improve those co-ops, to create other co-ops, and so forth. And then there's also, above those three co-ops, there's actually a community board that, that actually runs and, and has a vote uh, as well in the cooperative management. So it's not just the employees that own a part of the company, but the community as well. And there are community residents and activists as part of that community board, um, and they have a vote on on whether or not that uh, enterprise could be sold or not. Sometimes that co-ops, you know, they can choose to, to sell out. That actually recently happened with New Belgium Brewery, which used to be employ an employee-owned co-op. And they, they chose, the employees chose to sell to a large multinational corporation, unfortunately. But um, th this system, this, these evergreen cooperatives in Cleveland have a community share, which means the community has a say on whether or not that can ever happen and really guarantee it there. And you're really starting to see some success at these at these. Um, co-ops in Cleveland, they're, they're starting to grow, they're profitable, um, they're employing people directly in the community, mainly um, people returning from, from the prison system who wouldn't be able to find employment elsewhere. Those people are able to not only share profits, but um, participate in a in a housing program that helps them to buy houses in the community so that they can stay rooted and have assets in the community there. But most recently, and this is when you're starting to see the real potential for, for local scale in these kinds of ecosystems, the Cleveland Clinic uh, came up with a contract it had with Sodexo, a large multinational corporation, for their laundry. Um, and they put that contract out to bid. And one of the co-ops, the Evergreen Cooperative Laundry, went in at that bid and beat out Sodexo. So they actually got the full contract for all of the Cleveland Clinic laundry. And as they were able to do that, they then bought out the Sodexo facility, the plant. Oh, good. Of, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> and none of those employees lost their jobs. So no one lost their job. All of those employees at the Sodexo plant are now on a fast track to become employee owners with, with the cooperative. And they all got a raise to a, to a living wage. And, and again, no one lost their job. And so, so oh, that that's a great story. That one cooperative doubled in size, and and again, um, uh, you're seeing uh, an improvement in the quality of life for all of those people who were formerly working in Sodexo. So it's a really exciting story to see that kind of scale um, potential. And then lastly, I know I've been talking for a bit well, here, but it's... Wait, before yeah. you move on, so there are 
three co-ops. One is, uh, I want to say a farm. They make vegetables. The other one is the laundry and then creating solar panels. So you've talked about the laundry and how it has grown. And I had wanted to visit it uh, three, four years ago when Stephen Dub was on the program. He was the first one that told us about this. I think he was the first one. And so it, it's exciting. And they, they told me at first they wanted to wait a while to see how successful it becomes. So that's why I'm so excited to hear the success of them buying out somebody. And now they don't have the profit motive. So the, they, they can either perhaps come in lower price or they take that profit that was there and then spread it around to the members that have a better quality of life. It works. We've got to take our second break. And after yeah. we come back, I want you to go back into this other testimony I think you were getting ready to tell us. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Sarah McKinley on the line, who's the director for European Programs for the Democracy Collaborative. And we're just talking about Cleveland and Evergreen. I want to get this really in very quickly, Sarah, is that in Cleveland, in the census tract, the life expectancy was 65.4 years. And so 65 years old, 65 and a half is what you could expect to live inside Cleveland. But if you live two miles away in Shaker Heights, you can live 23 years more. The life expectancy was like 88. And that gets to what we're talking about when we start talking about the coronavirus and you look at any other issue around health. And it looks housing is critical for health. <laughs> Food is critical for health. Health care is critical for health. And when you have a living wage, you can buy all of this stuff. And if you don't have it, you can. And therefore, you live less, less time on earth and a less quality of life. And this is why I like what you're doing. Please, it, it makes a difference in how somebody lives and how long they live. Mm. No, it's you absolutely true. And, <laughs> and place, place matters. And that we talk about that in those terms because literally – you know, a two-mile difference can knock 20, 23 years off your life, and that's totally unacceptable in, in you know, the quote-unquote richest nation in, in human history, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it's very clear that where you're born and the opportunities that are presented to you and the things that you're exposed to environmentally and otherwise really determine um, your quality of life. Um, it really makes a huge difference. And so we talk about the social determinants of health. So not just clinical health, but the social determinants of health. What are those societal, environmental conditions that actually affect your, your health directly? And, it, and there have been many studies that show that in many ways, the social determinants of health have greater impact on your long-term health effects than, than actually clinical health does or genetic health or anything like that. In fact, you know, what you have access to, the air you're breathing, the food that you're eating, the stress that you're having or not having because of your job and so, or your lack of job, that all has huge impacts on your health. So one of the things we talk about when we talk about these ecosystems is, is clearly community health, but for example, hospitals are huge actors in place, right? And many of those mm -hmm. hospitals have been addressing clinical health. But if they really want to, to help 
with with health. They need to look at whole whole health. And so when we work with hospitals, we work with them to think about how they as economic actors, right, who are spending money to purchase goods and services and hiring people from certain places, how can they actually change their behavior in a way that would improve the health of people in communities? So how can they purchase from people locally so that they're supporting local enterprises and cooperative enterprises that are creating jobs and and sustainability for people living in place? At the same time that they're also perhaps hiring and creating skills from people who need it most rather than just importing um, employees from places where, you know, they already have many more more opportunities. So so really thinking about the, the choices that you make as an institutional actor and how they can help create better health in communities. And in fact, for hospitals, that's, you know, that's an important part of their functioning. It's, it's not just to treat the problems of ill health, it's to create actual good health in place. So, so that's one, one of the um, roles that institutions play in community and one way of thinking about it within this broader ecosystem of community. Fascinating what you're doing. Um, air, food, stress, housing, education, income, all affect health. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and this, if you look at the health of Native Americans, uh, the, the environments that they've been put, put in and the stress that they've been under just being Native American in America, and the same thing for blacks, being black in America, driving black in America, driving while black, all of these things put together cause one to live less time and have a worse quality of life. Um, interesting. I love what you're doing. How did you get into this world? Where you? Where did you grow up? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Well, um, actually, I, I'm from Washington, D.C., although my parents were uh, diplomats. So I moved around quite a lot um, when I was a child. And one of the places we lived in because of my parents' work was, was actually Haiti. And so if you want to talk about discrepancies in life expectancy, you can't really. Jesus Christ, yeah. A, a more stark example than Haiti. So I was living in Haiti when I was a very young girl. So I, I certainly am not going to claim that I understood all of these inequalities and, and these economic differentiations. But I was, you know, seven years old enough to realize that there was something very, very different in the way that I, a uh, privileged white uh, girl, lived versus the, the community around me. And places like Haiti, you know, the life expectancy there is 45 years of age which is absolutely intolerable and shocking. However, unfortunately, that statistic is not too far off from actually the life expectancy of an adult male living on the Pine Ridge Lakota Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota in the United States. So, you know, these kinds of really unfathomable, immoral discrepancies in, in quality of life exist in many places. Um, but sorry, I, I go, I'm going no, no, what you know no. is my passion, but, but one of the reasons it is my passion is because I think when I was a young girl and I, I saw that kind of inequality firsthand in Haiti, it really stuck with me and, and caused me to really want to question later in life as I became an adult why we have these kinds of discrepancies. What what are the systemic reasons for that? And then I, I had the privilege to go 
to, to college, uh, to university in Chicago, and I was working, living and working on the south side of Chicago. And here I was at, at this wonderful institution of learning and, and um, growth surrounded by home neighborhoods that were completely disconnected and disenfranchised and, and disinvested. Uh, and they were largely African-American communities. And I, I, I really was struck by and, um, uh, you know, irritated and angered by this sort of disconnect between the ivory tower, if you will, and then the communities around it and why. So, so after I left university, I got very involved in, in community organizing, community development work on the south side of Chicago, and that's where I started to sort of examine some of these systemic um, inequalities. And I worked for a community development corporation, the CDC, on the south side of Chicago, the Greater Southwest Development Corporation, which is one of the original community development corporations, grew out of the civil rights movement um, in a neighborhood right near West Englewood on the south side of Chicago, um, where actually Martin Luther King had come to begin his work in northern cities around economic inequality and injustice. And at that time, when he came to that neighborhood, he was stoned by white supremacists. And then, you know, 30 years later, when I was working in that neighborhood, that neighborhood, which at that point had been sort of beginning to change from a largely Eastern European white immigrant community to an African-American community, was now entirely an African-American community and incredibly disinvested and in sort of decline and so on and so forth, just in terms of infrastructure and so on and so forth. So, you know, working there with this community development corporation, they were really doing powerful things to organize and to push back against sort of um, corrosive city pol policies and so forth and to build housing and, and to create, you know, enterprise and so forth. But they could only get so far before mm -hmm. they really hit up against a really sort of confining uh, regulatory framework, ability to access funds, ability to to create um, new institutions in their community. And, and I found that really frustrating. And so there's so much exciting work that's happening on the ground in communities, so much empowering work that communities are doing for themselves that can only get so far before it hits up against these institutional ingrained roadblocks. Um, and so I came sort of to the, I then went back to school and studied this and sort of went through a circuitous route and landed at the Democracy Collaborative because I really was attracted to its approach to this ecosystem, that you can't just do sort of one effort here and only at the local level. You need to be able to work at multiple levels to create an ecosystem locally that can that can thrive and not keep hitting up against these you know, restrictions and regulations and legislative framework that, that keep that work down. So, so that's, that's the sort of long wow. story of how I came to here. Um, well, no, it's a, that's a great story, but you, you said, I'm sorry once and you have nothing, your passion comes through and you just leave me to lead, need to let it come on through. Do not apologize for that passion. By the way, do, do you uh, know Dr. Stacy Sutton, um, who's in, uh, College of Urban I, I don't know her. Public Affairs. I know of her, and she was just recently on your show, wasn't she? Was that last last week? week. Before? Yes, yes, and she's doing some similar work, and I think you guys would would really hit off. And she's very easy. She's she's easy to talk to, and she's very passionate also about this work. And her work is uh, creating cooperatives in these cities. What cities are? Right. She calls them cooperative cities, and what 
causes this to happen. And, and, and mm. she labels different cities, and some of them are the same cities you've been talking about. Um, matter of fact, I didn't get a chance to look, but I think all of the cities she's talking about are in your in your group also. And she's looking right. at and stratifying them a little bit different from the way you're doing it. Okay, so that's how you got here. And I've been to Haiti, and I just almost cried a couple times I've been there. And just the soil and vegetation, and it's real poor. Okay, got it. Economic injustice. So you looked at these 20 cities in 2015, and somehow you got to Brussels and the U.K. So how did you make that transition from here in D.C., working with Democracy Collaborative, to going to Europe? Well, and most of our work uh, at the Democracy Collaborative is based in the United States and has been. We are now going into our 20th year, and so we've been doing this for 20 years in the United States. Now, how it jumped the Atlantic is, you know, as most good stories, kind of organic, right? It, it wasn't planned. It just sort of happened. So our president, Ted Howard, uh, spoke at uh, international conference for cooperatives, the ICA conference in Manchester in in, in England um, in 2013, I think it was, or, or thereabouts, maybe 2012, I can't remember. But mm-hmm. at that time that he spoke there, he was talking about the work we were doing in Cleveland. And he was it was it was still early stages in Cleveland, but really talking about this notion of community wealth building and creating ecosystems for cooperative local economies. And so he was presenting on that. And, and in, in the audience was a young city councilor from, from a city uh, called Preston in the north of England, um, about an hour away from Manchester, a former industrial city. And they had their, their city council had just been in the process of coming up with a you know, a development plan for for downtown, and they were really struggling to to revive the downtown core of the city that had really been hollowed out by deindustrialization and and disinvestment and years of of austerity in the UK, where their government funding is just utterly cut off um, from the national level. So, so really, really uh, struggling small city, um, and they had come up with this development plan whereby, you know, a big outside investment company was going to build a Which mall. is a normal way. That's yep, the normal that's way. The normal but, Sarah, way. we're going to take our final break. Okay, <laughs> it's amazing yeah. how fast time goes. But just a, a quick recap. You had a great history D.C., traveling around with your parents. You saw Haiti, went to the University of Chicago, looking at Chicago and all of the stuff there, came to the Market Collaborative, and now you've jumped over the Atlantic and you're working in a town that had poverty, again, poor, and using these things that you've learned since then. So when we come back, I want to get more into Preston, which you're talking about and get your final word of what you want to tell people, your final thoughts. And we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your News Talk Station. Information is power. National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities. 
by providing innovative financial and related services. This is mainly in the U.S., but it sounds like, uh, Sarah, they could be working in Preston. It's a low-income community. So they, this is what NCB does. So you were talking about Preston, and you jumped over, and your the president of the Democracy Collaborative was speaking, and this young council person came up because they were looking at doing normal, trying to go outside and get a big box, some industry to come in and give them all these tax breaks, give them all of this stuff, and the local people have to pay for them to come in to create jobs. So what happened then? Well, actually, um, what happened was that that project utterly collapsed in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. So they had been planning this and planning this, and the big developer basically pulled out because they weren't going to do this. They had lost blah, blah, blah. And so, so you know, it, it fell apart, this, this plan to, quote, unquote, save downtown of Preston. So at that point, when our president came and was speaking in Manchester, they were really looking for alternatives. We need to do something, but we don't know what. And they heard the story of of. Cleveland of these networked cooperatives connected to local institutions who were redirecting their economic um, out- outputs to those local cooperatives. And this council member, uh, Matthew Brown, thought, aha, we can do that. You know, even though we, d- we have a very small budget and even though we are really uh, suffering because of, uh, you know, we don't have an industrial base anymore, we, we still have something. We still have assets, right? We have a university. We have a hospital. We have city government. Um, what can we do to, to make this kind of change ourselves locally? And so they set about um, developing an integrated strategy to redirect uh, uh, the institutional spending of, of both the city and, and those local institutions to local um, enterprises and to the community. And so they've been doing this now for over five years. Uh, they, they realize that both um, the city and the county had a combined spend where they were spending money of over one billion pounds per year. And so they did a whole analysis of where that was being spent and how. And then they started to redirect portions of that into local into local community. And in the process, they've redirected 700 million pounds back to local enterprises and local small small businesses. At the same time as they're doing that, they're starting to think, well, how else are we um, impacting our local economy and how can we do it in a more intentional way. So, of course, the city has a pension fund for, for city employees. Most pension funds are invested, uh, you know, in Wall Street to make as a higher return as possible for, for pensioners. Well, what if they were to take some of that pension fund and actually invest it into the local community? So they started investing more of their pension fund locally to build social housing or what we would call affordable housing. So they started using their pension fund to create um, investment in their local local community. At the same time, you mentioned NCBA, they're starting to think of how they can create their own local community-owned bank because they don't really have any and they're not being serviced by the big banks that generally focus on places like London and high finance capital. So how can they create a local bank, a local bank of Preston that can start to invest in communities? And now 
you know, they've made a huge success and they're starting to develop a whole cooperative strategy, what they're calling sort of gap cooperatives, the filling in the gaps where there aren't already enterprises serving needs or there aren't already public sector services being provided. Where can co-ops step in and fill that? So, for example, they're working with um, the local taxi union to develop a worker-owned taxi company that would also be unionized and there would be an app and it could be a counter to Uber, right? So they're starting to develop these cooperative strategies um, uh, across town as well. And they're working closely with Mondragon, which is a network of cooperatives. I'm sure you, I know you've talked about it on the program in Spain. So they're working closely with Mondragon to look at how they can do something similar, but different in their town in a way that would work. So you're starting to see all these interconnected pieces um, just by this kind of one aha moment from the city of how they can redirect um, their own spending and then encourage other institutional actors and others to do the same. So so it's a really exciting model. It, it's a different context, obviously, than Cleveland, although there are some similarities in the deindustrialization and, and disinvestment and so forth. But but it's also a totally different context. So it's really interesting to see how these ideas can be adapted and interpreted to really fit the needs and the assets of a particular community and place. And so Preston has sort of inspired a lot of other places around the UK, uh, Scotland, um, sort of a post-industrial area of Scotland, but also rural areas. You're seeing it in smaller towns and villages as well, starting to look at how they can do this locally as well to support a more cooperative uh, local infrastructure and economy. So. So my role has been to really help some learning exchanges among and between these places, both in the U.S. and over here that are trying to do these things because, you know, they're they're out there on their own doing this hard work in many ways or so it feels often. So it's really important to connect them to one another, to learn, to provide resources and, and to get the word out there that another way of doing this is possible. Do you like what you're doing? I do. It's really exciting. It's, you know, it, it can so often feel bleak. And certainly right now in this current moment of sort of uncertainty and crisis. So it's really exciting to actually be able to work with communities who, who are saying, OK, yeah, it's challenging, but we're not going to sit around and wait you know, for the presidential election and hope that something new will happen and, you know, someone else to save us, we're going to start doing, we're going to roll up our sleeves and do this ourselves as, as best we can. And, you know, as more and more people do that, those are the laboratories for change, the laboratories for a new democracy, a laboratory of, of things coming from the bottom up. And if we have more of these little experiments all over the place, it starts to cohere into a real alternative, right? That we don't just have to settle for, for the way things are done. And, you know, we started off the program kind of talking about this coronavirus moment and how it's showing sort of the failings in our current system, but also Mm -hmm. showing us that there are some opportunities locally. And so I really think we need to start looking at these really rooted local community economies as as an alternative for where we can go. And, you know, I think at this moment of coronavirus, we're going to need some... uh, some assistance at many levels, and we're looking to the state. We're starting to see sort of the state step in in interesting ways. So how can we 
use this to, to create a more democratic and devolved at all levels sort of interaction from the local up. Um, and I think it's going to be a really interesting opportunity. So. so I was going to go back to that. I'm glad you did. But in 07, 08, with that downturn of the real estate market crashing and caused a lot of other industries to crash and this big box company that was going to come into Preston, it caused them to not come in because the economies were down all over. And then there was this opportunity for the local people to start businesses to solve the problems in their community and create jobs and keep that money circulating within the community. I didn't understand the marketing principle of how many times the money turns in a community until I got onto this show. And that uh, with the big box, the ownership, that money made in that Preston would have gone out to those owners. And they would maybe live in London or maybe the U.S. or maybe Australia or Japan somewhere. And that money would have gone to those communities. Where when this local co-op owns it, that money stays in the Preston. And the people in Preston buy food there and they buy their laundry there and they get their haircuts there and all of this stuff, so the money stays there. And if you get this bank, then it would turn it over maybe instead of five turns, maybe it'll turn it eight, nine, ten times. And you just continue to create wealth. Yeah, phenomenal. Love it. <laughs> and absolutely. And, um, Preston has done some studies that the money that they've, as they use the term, they say repatriate. So they repatriated this money back to their community, meaning they brought it back from, from somewhere else. And they've, they've done studies that show that, that actually 80% of that was, was from large multinational firms that were headquartered in London and that most of their assets were sort of engaged in, in finance and Wall Street. So they weren't taking money from other, you know, small enterprises elsewhere. They were they were bringing money back into their community that was otherwise, you know, in places like London and the Cayman Islands and so forth. So really um, bringing that back home. So the, the other thing I, that brought out is that the cooperatives are based on the values of the first one is self-help. So people get the chance to solve their own issues and not look for somebody else to come in. Got a minute left. What would you like to leave people with, Sarah? What's your message? Well, I think I think that's a really um, good point that you end on it in that, you know, people people are doing this work. They've been doing this is not new. Right. People have been mm -hmm. cooperating and collectively working to meet their needs in community forever and ever. So, so it's happening everywhere. And so I think the, the, the goal now is to really connect it um, to one another and to scale it. And I don't mean just for growth sake, but in a way that really starts to benefit as many people as possible in place. Um, so I think that's sort of our next challenge. But but the reality is that these alternative economies exist and they work and they they show that, that something else, something better, something more sustainable, more just, more inclusive is possible. And now we really just need to connect the dots to get the resources behind it and, and the political will and the infrastructure, the ecosystem of support to support this kind of work in place really off the ground. And, and that's where we're headed. Thank and you. I think... I think we, we can do it. it. We can't. We can do it. Thank you so much. And everybody out there, be safe and live cooperatively. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah.